Good afternoon, everyone. In the Hebrew Scriptures are many prophecies relating to a Messiah who was to come and bring salvation to Israel and to the world. In the New Testament, this Messiah is identified as one who came in the flesh. Now, the Jews were looking for a Messiah at the time that Jesus was born, but he did not come in the manner or for the purpose expected by the Jews at that time, namely to throw off the yoke of Roman domination and immediately set up a world-ruling government. For that and other reasons, Jesus was in the final analysis rejected by most of the Jews as far as any Messianic claims are concerned. But did Jesus nevertheless fulfill prophecies of the Old Testament that would identify him as the prophesied Messiah? And are there other prophecies yet to be fulfilled that will further cement his claim to being the promised Messiah? I want to begin a discussion of this subject in today's sermon, the subject uh, that is inherent in those questions. And this will be part one of what I plan to be a two-part sermon or series of sermons to cover the subject. So to begin with, we find that the Messiah that was promised was to be born of a virgin. We read in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, Isaiah 7 and verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So notice here was to be a sign from God that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. His name would be called Emmanuel. Now we read in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, Matthew 1 and verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly, but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take you to Mary for your wife, for that which is conceived of her in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. Later on in this series, we'll discuss what Jesus itself means, but this uh, name itself has implications regarding why Jesus was sent. Going on, it says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So the name Emmanuel means God is with us. And this child was miraculously conceived in the womb of a virgin. Then it goes on to say, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Another fact about the Messiah that was promised was that he was to be born in Bethlehem the city of Bethlehem, which is a short distance from Jerusalem. And we read in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Micah 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, it was a small town, you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now notice this prophecy that it says, you, Bethlehem, 
though you are basically a small, more or less insignificant place on the map, out of Bethlehem would come the ruler of Israel, whose going forth, forth are from everlasting. In other words, God, the Messiah. This indicates that the Messiah would be, in fact, God. But he was also flesh. Now, later on, among the a crowd at, at a Feast of Tabernacles, where Jesus appeared, the crowd was, was speculating, this was in the temple, was speculating about exactly who Jesus was. And Jesus had lived in Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem, as we will see, but he uh, lived in Galilee, which was a region north of Jerusalem, and for that matter, north of, of Judea. And so they were speculating about who Jesus was, and some said one thing and some another. And then in, in John 7 and verse 41, John 7 verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. Now the word Christ is simply from the Greek Christos, which means anointed one, which is the Greek equivalent of the word Mashiach, the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means Messiah, anointed one. And so some said this is the Christ, but some said, will Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? And we go on in Matthew 2 and verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, But to you Bethlehem and the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall become a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this is way of differently translating the scripture we read earlier from Micah chapter 5. So they, the, the, the uh, Jewish leaders understood that this prophecy in Micah had to do with the Messiah and that it indicated that he would come forth out of Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Although later, shortly after that, he moved to Galilee. His family did. That's, that's where his family actually were living at the time. They were in Bethlehem on actually uh, because of a census conducted by the Romans at the time. Another prophecy concerning the Messiah that we've already seen reflected in scriptures we've read is that he was to be a descendant of David. God promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, 2 Samuel 7 and verse 12, he said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, your descendants, in other words, or a descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So the seed, the Messiah, was to come out of the loins of David, so to speak, and he was to be thus a descendant of David. In Luke 2 and verse 4, Luke 2 and verse 4, it says, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he, Joseph, was of the house and lineage of David. Joseph was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the 
days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And then we read in Luke 2, beginning with verse 10, Luke 2 and verse 10, there were shepherds in the field. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, that's Bethlehem, a savior who is Christ the Lord. So the angel told them that Christ, the Messiah, was born, had been born in Bethlehem. Now, Paul wrote in Romans 1, Romans 1, beginning with verse 1, he said, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through the, his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, we find in Matthew chapter 1 a genealogy of the family of Joseph, and it's believed that by many commentators that Matthew's genealogy of Jesus Christ is traced through Joseph. Since Jesus was you might say in a legal sense, from a legal perspective, he was the son of Joseph, although Joseph was, as we've seen, not his actual father. He was miraculously begotten in the womb of his wife by God through his spirit. So Joseph wasn't actually, literally, the father of Jesus, but he was the legal father. And so the genealogy in Matthew 1 would be a trace through Joseph and his lineage would be delineated going back from Joseph to David through Solomon. Remember, Solomon was the one who was given the the inheritance of the throne after David died. But there's another genealogy in the book of Luke, and many scholars or commentators, biblical scholars, believe that Luke's genealogy is through the ancestors of Mary, where this would be the natural line of descent. And that genealogy goes back to Nathan, who was Solomon's brother. Nathan, of course, did not inherit the throne from David, but he was a son of David. He was Solomon's brother, which you can read in 1 Chronicles 14 and verse 4. And these two separate lines, from one from Solomon and one from Nathan, met in Zerubbabel, who was a descendant of Jeconiah, a king of Judah, who was carried to Babylon in captivity. And Zerubbabel was instrumental in building the second temple after he and some other Jews returned from captivity in Babylon later on. In Matthew's genealogy, Joseph's father is Jacob. In, Luke, in Luke's genealogy, by contrast, it says, Luke 3 and verse 23, Luke 3 and verse 23, now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, notice as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now notice here, Joseph is called not the son of Jacob, but the son of Heli. Adam Clark, in commenting on this verse in his commentary, says, quote, As the Hebrews never permitted women to enter into their genealogical tables, 
Whenever a family happened to end with a daughter, instead of naming her in the genealogy, they inserted her husband as the son of him who was in reality but his father-in-law. Thus it appears that Joseph, son of Jacob, according to Matthew, was son-in-law of Heli, according to Luke. End quote. So Joseph was the son of uh, Jacob in, in terms of being his literal son, but he was the son-in-law of Heli, being married to the daughter of Heli, who was Mary. And so this, this genealogy in Luke is through Jesus' mother. But she also was of the seed of David. Now, these are detailed genealogical records, but the fact is that genealogical records were carefully kept by Jews. Probably most of us don't know who our forebears are more than a couple of generations or maybe three or four generations, if that many, because it's not typical in our culture here in the United States to, for most of us, at least, to keep detailed genealogical records. Certainly it's not a custom in my family, although I know who some of my ancestors are, but not very far back. But that's not the case among the Jews. Uh, genealogical records were carefully kept by Jews as for, for several reasons. For, first of all, one could not marry a priest without proof of genealogical purity, as we read in Ezekiel chapter 44 and verse 22. A priest was permitted to marry only someone whose genealogical purity as an Israelite could be demonstrated. And also for other reasons, they maintained their genealogical records for purposes of inheritance. There were laws concerning inheritances that had to do with family roots in Israel. Also as proof of citizenship, because there were certain privileges that were granted to, to uh, Israelite citizens as opposed to immigrants or, or strangers in Israel. Also for eligibility for the priesthood, one could not become a priest if he could not prove that he was a Levite or in, in the case of the priesthood, not only a Levite, but a descendant of Aaron. So, they had to maintain their family history. Also, simply to trace their family history and know where they came from, and especially that was true of David's line of descent since the Messiah was to be descended from David. And those are just some of the reasons that the Jews, as a general rule, kept careful genealogical records. And by the way, the Jews, as you know, by the time of Jesus Christ, were scattered all over much of the world. We read this statement from The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Adersheim, where he's talking about uh, some Jewish customs. And he says here in this book concerning the life and times of Jesus, he says, quote, great care and labor were bestowed on preserving full and accurate records so as to establish purity of descent among the Jews, end quote. And the fact is, many who identify as Jews still maintain detailed genealogical records, especially if they are descendants of Levi, because of the distinct laws that apply only to descendants of Levi. So, Jesus, or I should say the Messiah, had to be a descendant of David, and that's what the genealogical records tell us, both on his putative father's side as well as his mother's. Now, another fact about the Messiah is that he had to be born at a point in history where several conditions could mesh with prophecy. 
In other words, there was a time element to when the Messiah had to be born, when he had to appear. For one thing, he had to appear while the temple was still standing. We read in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, Malachi 3 and verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So it says here that he would come to his temple. Now this prophecy actually has a dual meaning. For one thing, the church we read elsewhere is the spiritual temple of God. And we also find revealed that there is more than one coming of the Messiah that is discussed in Scripture. We won't get into that in detail today, but we may later. But this Scripture in Malachi applies to the physical temple as well, which was in existence at the time that Jesus was born in the flesh. Jesus was in the temple in Jerusalem frequently during his lifetime on earth. The first time that he appeared in the temple in the flesh was when his parents took him there soon after he was born. We read in Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2 and verse 22, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Messiah. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. In other words, he was directed by God's Spirit in some way to come into the temple at that particular time when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And so this Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So Simeon recognized this child through this great revelation of God's Spirit that this was the Messiah. Early in his ministry is another of many occasions when Jesus was in the temple and we won't go through all of the specific occasions when Jesus is uh, located at the temple in the in the scriptures, but one of those occasions was recorded in John chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. This was early in Jesus' ministry. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Now that temple that Jesus was taken to when he was redeemed as the firstborn with the sacrifices 
the temple that he went to to cast out the merchants and money changers was destroyed in 70 AD. It was raised to the ground. So the Messiah could not have been born after that time. That temple has never been rebuilt. And Jesus could not have been born after that time if he were to fulfill all the prophecies connected with his first coming. In Daniel chapter 9 is a prophecy called the 70 weeks prophecy. And from Daniel 9, beginning with verse 24, we read, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Notice it says to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublous times. Now seven weeks and 62 weeks is 69 weeks, which isn't very long. It's a little over a year. And Jesus did not appear anytime, anywhere near the time that this prophecy was written. It goes on to say, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant for many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now there is a considerable amount of controversy about what some of these statements mean exactly in Daniel chapter 9. But it is recognized by nearly all Bible scholars that there were several commandments or decrees that had to do with Jerusalem during the time of the Persian Empire. And the Jews had been taken into captivity by the Babylonians. The Babylonian Empire was overtaken and succeeded by the Persian Empire, which ruled essentially the same area plus a much larger territory, actually. But there were several rulers among the Persians who who gave who issued edicts having to do with Jerusalem. And the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the time of the Messiah would be 69 prophetic weeks. Now, on the day for a year principle, in other words, a year representing a day in prophecy, that would mean 483 years. In 69 weeks, there are 483 days. So on the day for a year principle, it would be 483 years from the issuing of, of the edict or the decree to the appearance of the Messiah. Now, as I said, there were several of these decrees, and there's some controversy about which of the decrees of the Persian kings is the correct one from which to count. And I don't want to get into all the particulars of the discussion concerning that subject now because it's far too complex and too far afield for the purpose of this sermon. But the bottom line is that the crucifixion of, of Christ, of Jesus, occurred either in 30 A.D. or 31 A.D., meaning that was when his life was terminated physically speaking, his fleshly life. And the Messiah then had to appear sometime within the time frame that fits within 
the period of 483 years from a decree to restore and build to restore and build Jerusalem. And Jesus' life fits within this time frame. The end of that period of 483 years. Moreover, Jesus proclaimed the gospel confirming the covenant for three and a half years, at which time he was cut off. Remember the prophecy said that he would be cut off. And it says he would be, it says uh, that in the midst of the week, sacrifices and offerings would be caused to cease the 70th week of this prophecy. And when Jesus was cut off, that brought an end to the necessity for the physical sacrifices of the old covenant. It's also the fact that he was slain on a Wednesday, which is in the midst of a week. So whatever the precise details concerning the chronology of this prophecy, it fits exactly the time frame in which Jesus Christ lived and died. So this is another time element, a rather precise time element, during which the Messiah had to appear, and Jesus appeared at that time. Now, Jesus, shortly before his death, also came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, being hailed as the Messiah. And it was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now other prophecies picture the Messiah coming in other ways, which I won't go into detail right now, but this prophecy pictures him coming into Jerusalem on, a, on the foal of a donkey. We read in Matthew 21, beginning with verse 1, Matthew 21 and verse 1, that Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. This was toward the end of his ministry. It says in verse 1 of Matthew 21, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that was an appellation applying to the Messiah. Well understood by the Jews what it meant. Hosanna in the highest. So this was another messianic prophecy that was fulfilled by Jesus. After he got into Jerusalem, Jesus was betrayed by one of his close companions who took 30 pieces of silver for his perfidy. As we read in Zechariah 11 and verse 12, Zechariah 11 and verse 12, Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. We read in Matthew 26, beginning with verse 14. Matthew 26 and verse 14. Then one of the twelve, one of twelve, the twelve closest disciples whom Jesus had been training for three and a half years to be ordained as apostles. One of them, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief 
priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted to him, counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to, to betray him. And then we read in chapter 26 of Matthew, beginning with verse 45. Matthew 26 and verse 45. Jesus, this was the night of the Passover. And after having eaten the Passover meal, he had gone out with his disciples to the Mount of Olives and he had taken three of them aside to a quiet place to pray and asked them to pray with him. And uh, so he had been praying there a little ways off and then he came, it says, to his disciples, the ones who he had taken with him to pray, and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Because they'd gone to sleep. Instead of praying, they'd gone to sleep. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be gone. Uh, going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people, now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? And they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Then in the next chapter, chapter 27 of Matthew, beginning with verse 1, when morning came, he was arrested at night, probably sometime after midnight. And when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they laid him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them in the, to the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now this is phrased slightly different from the prophecy we read about in the book of Zechariah. And the prophecy is actually in the book of Zechariah, not in the book of Jeremiah. And some see this as a contradiction. Both the book of prophecy of Jeremiah and that of Zechariah both of them are in the section of Scripture called the Latter Prophets. In, in the way the Scriptures were arranged, the Hebrew Scriptures, there were actually three main divisions, the Law, the Prophets, and the what are called the Writings, or the Hagiographa, the Holy Writings. And the division called the Prophets was in turn divided into the former prophets and the latter prophets. And this is a commentary. Uh, this is a comment from Gill's commentary on this issue. He says, quote, the writings or, or hagiographer, which began with the book of Psalms, 
now as this whole and third and last part is called the Psalms, as you can read in Luke 24 and verse 44, Jesus referred to the this division as the Psalms because it began with that book. It began with the book of Psalms, although it contained another number of other books as well, the writings. But it was called the Psalms because that was the first book. So all that part which contained the latter prophets and for the same reason begin at Jeremiah might be called by his name, hence a passage standing in the prophecy of Zechariah, who was one of the latter prophets, might be justly cited under the name of Jeremiah. That such was the order of the books of the Old Testament is evident from the following passage, and this is quoting from a, a Jewish document, quoted as a tradition of our rabbins that the order of the prophets is Joshua and Judges, Samuel and the kings, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the twelve, the twelve so-called minor prophets. And uh, Gil goes on to say in his common comment, moreover, it is usual with them to say, quote, that the spirit of Jeremiah was in Zechariah, end quote. And it is very plain that the latter prophets have many things from the former. So might Zechariah have this originally from Jeremiah, which now stands in his prophecy. All this would be satisfactory to a Jew. So it could be that Zechariah actually received this as a verbal tradition from Jeremiah, not in the written prophecy of Jeremiah. And in any case, that whole section of the Old Testament might be termed Jeremiah. So if that helps any to clear up any confusion about uh, the scripture in Matthew. Another time element when the Messiah had to appear is that it had to be at a time when the Jews in Jerusalem were restricted from carrying out the death penalty and at a time when the method of execution would in fact be crucifixion along with scourging. Jesus was condemned on a charge of blasphemy by the, by the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. He was condemned on a charge of blasphemy. As we read in Mark 14, beginning with verse 61, Mark 14, verse 61, again, the high priest asked him, this was after he'd been arrested and brought to the chamber of the Sanhedrin in the temple. And the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And so he was condemned by the Sanhedrin. Actually, not every single one. The vast majority condemned him. There were a couple who did not. But in any case, he wound up being condemned. So that was the charge, blasphemy. However, the Jews could not carry out the death sentence for blasphemy by stoning. That is the penalty prescribed for blasphemy in Leviticus 24 and verse 16. Now when they, so what they did is they brought Jesus to the Roman governor because the Jewish state was under the uh, authority of, of the Romans. It was, had been taken into the Roman Empire as a part of it and was ruled by the Romans. And so they there was a Roman governor present in Jerusalem and his name was Pilate. They took the case to Pilate and told Pilate that this man was worthy of death. They said that uh, he also threatened the 
emperor of Rome because he claimed to be a king. That was their charge before Pilate. And so Pilate examined him and said to them, as we read in John 18, verse 31, John 18, verse 31, Pilate said, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus had prophesied concerning his death, and it was not to be by stoning. In John 12, verse 32, John 12, verse 32, Jesus said, If I am lifted up from the earth, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Now, the way crucifixions were done in the Roman Empire is that a, a stake or a cross was laid on the ground and then the victim was either nailed or tied to the instrument of death and then lifted up and a hole had been prepared and the, the stake holding the victim was placed in the ground, lifted up from the earth. So the implication here is that he would die as a result of crucifixion. In Matthew 20 and verse 18, Matthew 20 and verse 18, Jesus said to his disciples as they were preparing to go to Jerusalem, he said, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be, destroyed, be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. So Jesus knew in advance what was going to happen to him and exactly how he was going to die. And it was not to be by stoning, even though the charge was blasphemy. Prophecy also indicates that the Messiah would submit to his interrogation in silence. In a Messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse beginning verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet, he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus did not attempt to defend himself before his accusers. We read in Matthew 27, Matthew 27 and verse 12, while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. We read another prophecy concerning the Messiah in Isaiah 50 and verse 6. Isaiah 50 and verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. In Luke 18 and verse 31, Luke 18, verse 31, he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon and they will scourge him and kill him and the third day he will rise again and so then we read in mark 14 verse 65 as he was being interrogated and so forth some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him prophesy and the officers struck him with the palms of their hands in Another prophecy concerning the Messiah in Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3. Isaiah 53 and verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now, one of the instruments that was used to inflict punishment on Jesus after he had been arrested was a scourge or a cat of nine tails, which has a handle with typically nine leather straps attached to it. And on the ends of those straps were bits of bone or, or stone. And as the person was whipped with that instrument, it would leave bloody striped strips of flesh flaying the victim. It says, by his stripes we are healed. And so we read in John 19, beginning with verse 1, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a, corner, a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple road, robe, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. So he was subjected to all kinds of humiliation and punishment, including mocking and being beaten with a scourge, being beaten with their fists and their hands and other instruments. In Mark 15 and verse 15, we read further, Mark 15, beginning with verse 15, so Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he, del he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him. Further, he had been scourged already once, at least once before, after he was scourged to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck him on the head with a reed and spit on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him, or pretended to, and when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then in John 19, verse 16, beginning with 16 of, of John 19, he delivered, them to be, uh, delivered him to, to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of his skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. So there were two others crucified at the same time, at least two others. We read in Matthew 27, verse 38, it says, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. These were men who were being crucified as thieves. In Isaiah 53 and verse 12, we read the prophecy concerning the Messiah because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And I didn't, I don't think I uh, noted this scripture, but actually one of the thieves actually asked Jesus to remember him in his kingdom and he said he would. In Isaiah 53 again in verse 10, Isaiah 53 and verse 10, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. 
He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. In Psalm 22 and verse 14, we read another prophecy pertaining to Jesus' death and what preceded it. Psalm 22, beginning with verse 14, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Typically, when was one was hung on a cross, it pulled some of the bones out of joint. It goes on to say, my heart is like wax. It has melted within me. This is, gives you an idea of what it would have felt like to be hanging on a cross as Jesus was. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tr- tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And so we read in John 19, verse 23, John 19, verse 23, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier a part and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece, and they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Psalm 69, verse 21 is another prophecy. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. And so we read in John 19, beginning verse 28. John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. Now when wine sours, it turns into vinegar. So a a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it uh, to his mouth. Then when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. We read a prophecy in Psalm 34, verse 19. Psalm 34, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now it was typical sometimes if they wanted to hasten death of a man hanging on a cross to break his legs which would eventually cause him to suffocate fairly quickly. And so we read in John 19, verse beginning of verse 31, John 19, verse 31, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, it was the preparation day for the first day of the Feast of and that preparation day for the first day of the feast also happens to be the Passover. So the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a holy day, a Sabbath, an annual Sabbath. And so the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, those being crucified, and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his 
side with a spear or had pierced his side with a spear. Actually, he had already been pierced with a spear and immediately blood and water came out and that's how he died. He bled to death. So he was already dead when they came to to break his legs. And it says, He who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierced. So Jesus did not die by being stoned. And he did not die of asphyxiation as was typical of someone who who was being crucified, especially someone whose legs were broken. He was died as his as a spear was thrust into his side, probably penetrating his heart. And so we read in First Peter chapter one and verse seventeen. First Peter one and verse seventeen. If you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You were redeemed by the blood shed by Jesus Christ, which ended his life. In Hebrews 9, in verse 11, Hebrews 9, verse 11, says, Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, but with the blood of, and not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In another prophecy in Isaiah 53 and verse 9, Isaiah 53 and verse 9 says they made his grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death. So he died with transgressors who had been condemned as thieves but it says they made his grave with the rich at his death because he had done no violence nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And so we read in Matthew 27 and verse 57. Matthew 27, beginning with verse 57. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea. A rich man named Joseph. Who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. When Pilate commanded the body to be given to him, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Now we already mentioned that Jesus was slain on the Passover, which is the 14th of Abib. And there's also some confusion about that, but... We've covered that issue in detail in a document we have available called When is the Biblical Passover? But the Passover answers to the type of the Passover lamb, which is another indication of the fact that Jesus' death fulfilled what the Scriptures indicated would happen to the Messiah. 
We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. The details of the crucifixion of Jesus fulfills many specific prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the Messiah as the one who suffered and died to bear our sins. In addition, we've covered several other specific prophecies that were fulfilled pointing to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And in a future sermon, I hope to continue with other evidence that leads to the conclusion that Jesus was and is indeed the Messiah.